With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of The Compliance Life. This month, I'm visiting with Gabe Hidalgo. Gabe is, of course, Managing Director at K2 Integrity. Today, we're going to take up the topic of what put the compliance bug in Gabe's ear. And frankly, it's one of the most unique stories that I've heard. So, Gabe, first of all, welcome back. Gabe, you shared a little bit of this story with me, and I'm going to introduce it by um, uh, telling our audience that you're a native New Yorker and uh, that 9-11 deeply affected you. I was wondering if you could maybe start with sort of how 9-11 affected you as a native New Yorker and how that started you down the journey towards the CCO chair. Sure. So back when uh, in the year 2001, I was working as a, uh, by that point, I think I had already transitioned to outside counsel, uh, working, helping insurance companies uh, on insurance defense matters. Um, I was working at that point, I believe in Long Island. My wife was working in Midtown, New York. Um, I was on my way to work, and I had my radio on listening to the local news network, uh, 1010 Winds, out of New York. Anyone who's a native New York person from New York City knows 1010 Winds. It's kind of the new the the news uh, radio station. When all of a sudden, um, around 8.40-something, um, there was a report that a small plane had hit one of the trade towers. Um, I, honestly, I couldn't believe it. Um, I thought to myself, that's got to be some sort of um, uh, inexperienced pilot that kind of strayed from their flight path. Um, and then a few minutes after that, I heard that another plane had struck the other tower. At this point, I knew that this was not um, a, a simple accident, but instead was some sort of terror attack. Uh, and the reason I had known that was I had done a ton of reading on Al-Qaeda um, prior to this. Uh, in 1993, there was also a similar attack on the World Trade Center. Um, they had done it through a car bomb in the garage. And so I knew that this was some sort of coordinated attack. All of a sudden, uh, I had arrived in the office. Um, everyone in the office, at that point, we were at the very beginning of the internet, but we had um, Yahoo TV turned on on our computers and we can see the smoke rising from the towers. Uh, at this point, I was very worried. Uh, my wife was working in Midtown. I was trying to get a hold of her, but all the telephone lines uh, were 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 busy, were not working. Uh, I you know I tried calling her on her cell phone, uh, 
um, which again at that time was a pretty new device. Uh, I managed to reach out to her for about 10 seconds. I asked her to please head home now, that this is not a drill, this is not an accident. She needs to get home now. Um, and luckily, uh, she was able to get on the train and head back. At the time we were living in Queens, uh, she was able to get back home. She got in her car uh, after she got out of the train station in, in Queens and headed home. Um, I saw the falling of the towers. Uh, as a kid, whenever we had family that came from Ecuador to visit, we would take them to the World Trade Center. It was the number one place, that and the Statue of Liberty were the number one places that we would take them for visits, for, for family visits and everything else. It was basically like the landmark of New York City. The, si the skyline of New York City uh, had always, um, as far as I was concerned, since I've been born, uh, the Trade Center. To see them collapse, uh, to see people jumping off those towers, to see the destruction that occurred on that day, um, it was a sad, sad occasion for me. I, it impacted me deeply. I, that day, I cried. I think my wife cried. Um, at that point, my wife, um, we had just found out that she was pregnant with our daughter. And I just kept thinking, is this the world that my daughter is going to come in? Or we're just going to be attacked like this. Um, I, I didn't, I couldn't make sense of it. Um, you know, living in, New York, in the United States, we're pretty immune to terrorist attacks because of the oceans that separate us uh, from, you know, Europe and, and the Middle East and Africa and all the other continents. But now here it was, it has come to life. And so um, that really changed something in me. I wanted to make a difference, I wanted to do something. To, to try and prevent these types of things. Initially, um, I told my wife I want to go to law enforcement or F the FBI so I can help them track down with whatever skills I have um, to help them track down these types of perpetrators in the future. Uh, my wife vetoed that. <laughs> and as any husband uh, uh, out there knows, uh, happy wife, happy life. So I wasn't about to go against her wishes. She did not want to see me um, in the line of fire or have to deal with firearms on a daily basis. Um, you know, she, she wanted to make sure I was safe. So at that point, I tried to look for other avenues um, in which I could make a difference, in which I felt like I could participate in the prevention of something like this ever happening again. Um, at the same time, I was getting a little burnt out from my um, career at the time. So this was kind of a, uh, a way for me figure out if there was something else that I can use my legal degree for and all the skills that I had picked up. Um, and so I looked for different opportunities and then I found one in 2000, I wanna say late 2003, early 2004, um, there was an opening for a uh, director of uh, compliance and general counsel for a money remitter located in Queens, which actually happened to be uh, the money remitter that my family used to send money back to South America, to Ecuador. Uh, and so I was very familiar with the company. I was very familiar with um, how Casa de Cambios work. Um, they, you know, they, they uh, were looking for someone to handle both the legal and the compliance side of their um, business. I could definitely handle the legal side, the general counsel stuff. That was not going to be an issue, but it never worked in a compliance capacity. So uh, anti-money laundering compliance, sanctions compliance, all these things I had not done before. So I instantly started to do the research on it. I understood that I could do that. 
that I could learn it pretty quickly. Um, so when I went in for my interview, um, the owner of the company sat down and we had a really good conversation. I expressed to him how I knew about his company for a long time because my parents have been uh, customers for a long time using their services to send funds to support our family back in Ecuador. Um, he asked me about my legal experience and I gave him kind of like what I had been doing and what I was capable of. And then he asked me about compliance. And I'll never forget what I told him. I said, if you give me 30 days, I promise you that I will be up on all things AML and all things sanctions uh, to make sure that you have the best policies and procedures and program that you could possibly have. Uh, I said, I just need 30 days to kind of catch up to do the research. Um, and, and then, you know, it, I'll, I'll be okay. I'll be fine. Uh, he took a chance on me and he gave me the job. And that kind of is the turning point for me, the pivot point in career-wise. It's, it's a very, uh, a very different, <laughs> I think, very different path than most people have. Could you talk about some of the places you worked and maybe one or two of the highlights from each of those or kind of what you learned uh, through this journey of AML compliance? Sure. So I, I worked at uh, the Money Remitter for, I think, about a year and a half. Um, at that point, my brother, uh, who had graduated from NYU um, and had worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, had moved over to Deloitte. Um, and he, I was at his birthday party and I met some of his colleagues from Deloitte and uh, my brother had, I guess, bragged about what I, the work I had done for the money remitter and built, rebuilding their compliance program and getting a, a, a seal of approval from the, um, from DFS, well, the banking uh, group at that point, not, it wasn't DFS yet, that came later for New York State. And so um, basically they set up a interview for me at Deloitte. Um, and so when I met with them, they were looking for someone who had Latin American skills, the ability to speak Spanish, and uh, had experience from an AML standpoint for money service businesses. Uh, and what I found out was they didn't really have a lot of people who had worked at a money service business, like a money remitter. And so banks, um, you know, they needed help in that area because a lot of their clients were money service businesses. They needed to understand how to set up monitoring systems, how to ask the right questions of money remitters, that sort of thing. So I joined Deloitte uh, as a senior associate and began working with them. And I was part of their global AML team. Uh, Michael Zeldin was, was my boss. Uh, so if Michael's listening, thank you for the opportunity, Mike. I really appreciate it. Um, I worked in the global AML team on different projects. Um, luckily, one of those projects uh, was with North Fork Bank, which ended up being Capital One. They were acquired by Capital One Bank. Um, and Capital One, uh, North Fork Bank at the time, came to me. I had been working for Deloitte for almost two years, came to me and asked if I would be interested in being their uh, director of their new FIU that they were setting up in New York, their transaction monitoring group. Um, it was a great opportunity. And at the time, my mom... Um, uh, we, she had just been diagnosed with cancer, so I needed to stay home. I couldn't travel. And even though I loved the work I was doing at Deloitte, I needed to stay home. Uh, so this was like the perfect opportunity. Norfolk Bank um, is situated, well, I was was situated in uh, Melville, New York. So being in Queens and doing the reverse commute to Long Island was an amazing uh, experience. It was, I learned a lot. Uh, we built out the new transaction monitoring platform for Norfolk Bank, which ultimately became Capital One. It was the first 
time that I had used Actimize as a system, which at that point had been a, a new system that was uh, kind of cutting edge. So I learned a lot there. I learned a lot about developing uh, alert uh, rules, transaction monitoring, setting up appropriate workflows, proper documentation, all these things I learned. Uh, I appreciated my time at Capital One. Um, and then after Capital One, I went to work. Um, I went to work for Morgan Stanley uh, because they needed to build out their uh, compliance programs and update some of their compliance programs for their industrial banks that they had out in Utah. And so I was part of a four-person team that helped. My, my role was really building out their AML compliance programs. Uh, and then we had other people on the team that built things out like Reg W, suitability, that sort of thing. Um, and so I helped not only with the bank, but I also helped with the uh, broker dealer side as they wanted help in kind of putting together uh, and, and updating some of their alert rules. Uh, so I learned a lot about the broker dealer side. I learned a lot about the banking side. Um, and then after that, um, I was recruited by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York who had seen my work that I had done it at uh, Morgan Stanley and uh, they were impressed by it. And they recruited me to be a senior AML examiner uh, within within the team. I really loved working at the Federal Reserve. It was by far uh, probably one of the best jobs I ever had. I was there for almost four years. I started out as a senior AML examiner. I uh, was part of different teams that were assigned to uh, examine some of the largest banks in the Federal Reserve Bank's portfolio. Um, and then after two years of being uh, a senior AML examiner, I was promoted to be uh, a legal and compliance risk specialist, uh, where I was assigned to one of the 10 largest banks in their portfolio to basically oversee the legal and compliance risk and to basically do annual exams and be an on-site presence uh, of the Fed for this bank. Uh, so you know they had to provide reports and I had to review basically everything and then provide reports down to the Board of Governors in DC in regards to the status of both their legal program as well as their compliance program. Uh, that was an amazing experience. Uh, and if any of my reserve, uh, Federal Reserve Bank colleagues are listening, I love you guys. I really enjoyed it. Um, after that, I was recruited by HSBC uh, to work in their legal department as a senior counsel uh, to be the liaison to the monitor. Uh, HSBC had recently had the, you know, at that point, the largest AML fine in, in history placed upon it. Uh, and they had an independent monitor assigned to them, and I worked as a liaison between the the bank and the um, and the independent monitor and their team. And so uh, the legal team, uh, myself, and the compliance team, we all worked together to basically make sure that the monitor had all the documentation, that all the interviews were taking place, uh, that you know we were responding on time and on point to whatever the independent monitor wanted to see. At the same point, uh, the compliance team was redoing their policies and procedures uh, to improve them based on the feedback from the independent monitor. Um, I would, you know, from time to time, help the compliance team. Uh, with their policies and procedures, I would be, you know, someone that they would send policies to to review. I would help them with edits or other viewpoints, or you know, give them insight based on uh, regulatory expectations, given my experience at the Federal Reserve, of what it is that needed to be in these policies. Um, I worked at HSBC for almost two years, and then I was recruited by 
ITBIT, which was um, <laughs> which was the um, my first foray professionally into cryptocurrency, virtual assets. I had been a big um, cryptocurrency enthusiast uh, since 2011. In fact, I gave a presentation to my colleagues at the Fed in regards to cryptocurrency uh, back in, in 2011. Uh, they all laughed at me. And I think a lot of them were saying, you know, this is just funny money and things that little kids are going to do in their parents' basements and everything else. Um, and so now it's, you know, it's kind of blossomed. But back then, you know, everybody was talking about the white paper and is this really a thing? Um, so anyway, I, I ended up working at ITBIT as their uh, global head of compliance. I put together their compliance program. I uh, was there during the first uh, DFS exam of ITBIT. Uh, we received the first in the United States, the first uh, uh, charter, a financial institutional charter, a limited purpose trust um, ever given to a virtual asset service provider. Uh, that was done uh, through the hard work of everyone at, at the company. Um, I was basically brought on to, to help shepherd that, to help shepherd the, uh, the program. Uh, it was a great experience. I met a lot of great people. We were basically pioneers in this new area. Uh, you know, I started there in 2015. So it's really where um, you first started to see kind of a professional atmosphere occurring uh, in this area, you started to see more and more companies starting up in this area, uh, and that was a fantastic experience. I then uh, was recruited by Community Federal Savings Bank uh, to be the um, chief compliance officer uh, for the bank. It's uh, so CFSB, as it's known, is a bank that's very fintech friendly, and they work with various fintechs to get them into the American um, ecosystem uh, through you know uh, through their programs and everything else and so I was brought on to help rebuild the compliance program to help them with their um, with their examination process uh, to basically reset the compliance program and also to help them kind of sort through the various candidates uh, from a fintech perspective in regards to the candidates that the bank should be working with uh, that was a super super uh, important part of my career because I had a lot of touch points with various fintechs and various stages of development. And being that I had just come from a startup, I understood what it was like for these companies to go through their funding stages, to go through their development stages, to go through their um, implementation stages. Uh, and so I had a good understanding of that. And I think that helped a lot in the development of the fintech um, onboarding at, at the bank. Uh, so that's CFSB. And then after that, I was recruited, uh, after two years, I was recruited by uh, Noble Bank International, which was a startup challenger bank, uh, to be their chief compliance officer. That So that's two times in a row that I was the, the CCO at a bank. Um, it was a challenger bank, uh, which is basically a new bank, a de novo bank. Uh, and the mandate for Noble Bank, uh, Noble, uh, bank International was really uh, to basically set up a bank that would be crypto friendly. Uh, and the reason for that is in the early stages, a lot of banks would not open up accounts uh, for virtual asset service providers uh, because they were too risky for a lot of banks. You know, their risk appetite, uh, you know, tended to be a, a bit conservative. And so many banks would say, no, 
we were the alternative. We were able to um, have that opportunity. And so uh, after being this chief compliance officer at uh, Noble Bank International, I was recruited by K2 to basically uh, start heading up the uh, virtual asset service services practice, the basically the crypto and fintech practice at the firm. And that's where I'm at today as a managing director. Well, Gabe, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where we take a look at you moving into the CCO chair. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. Thanks a lot, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode with Gabe Hidalgo in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.